0: Thanks, Terry. I don't have to repeat to you how I feel about this congregation. I always feel like I'm coming home, and the close relationship, the partnering that we've done for so many years in so many ways is just exhilarating to me. A topic assigned to me, Christian's view of death. So let's begin by defining the term. How would you define that? What is death? You know, um, that's changed in history and in our own nation. I remember as a child, uh, I think, that was a pretty long time ago, I think that the definition of death was when a person stopped breathing. And then they realized the heart can still be beating. And so they changed the definition of death and said it's when your heart stops. And then they changed it again and said, "No, a person's heart can stop, and you can give them, you know, cardiovascular resuscitation, all that stuff, and bring it back to." Life. Now the current definition is something along the line of uh, the cessation of brain waves. But who says that's going to be the right definition many years from now? So medical science really doesn't know. But the Bible does, and it states it succinctly and very precisely. It entails the concept of separation, specifically the separation of the spirit from the body. Now, notice that secularists, atheists, humanists don't even believe you have a spirit. Just whatever this is that we call your personality is animating your body. But when your body dies, that dies, and that's it. There's no further existence of you. The Bible is very clear about this. Our physical bodies are just that. They're physical receptacles. But they're not us. Our bodies change constantly. And over time can change so much that people won't even recognize you that do you many years before. But you are your mind, your spirit, your person, your personality. Here is uh, one great definition. The death of the body, that separation... Of the soul from the body by which life on earth is ended. See, the the Bible never makes the mistake of saying that you, your spirit, dies. Your spirit never dies. Your body dies. But you, your spirit, your person, transcends death and continues to exist. Now look at this precise definition given to us by James. Notice the precision, you know not intended to be a medical book or anything like that, and yet cuts through all of the falderal that humans generate and gets to the point. The body without the spirit is dead. And, of course, there's a host of passages that teach that very concept. So when when our spirits are still in our bodies, we are alive. When our spirit exits our bodies, we are dead. You remember uh, Rachel was giving birth and died in childbirth. And the text says that her soul was in departing. That is, she was dying in that act. What about uh, Elijah when he restored the, ch- uh, the uh, child uh, that had died? The soul came back into him. Uh, the Bible calls that resurrection. When the spirit reenters the body. By the way, that's one reason why I know that all of these so-called Uh, out-of-body experiences, I hate to break this to you, if you think there's something to that, and maybe you think you've had one, they're not true. When your spirit leaves your body, it's not coming back unless a miraculous resurrection is performed. And as I understand it, the Bible doesn't teach that happens anymore. Resurrection is not occurring now until the general resurrection. So whatever's going on there, it's probably dependent more on drugs than it is on anything else. Uh, Luke 8, her spirit returned and she arose immediately. See, as if her spirit had gone somewhere and now it it has returned. Uh, What did Jesus say on the cross? Into thy hands I commit my spirit. He was acknowledging that his person, his spirit, which was an eternal being, deity, was about to exit the physical body that he inhabited. Matthew 27, and yielded up his spirit. Stephen, we remember looking up into the heavens, said, Lord Jesus, receive my spirit. And then um, Paul mentioned in this fascinating passage in 2 Corinthians 12, whether in the body or out of the body, I do not know. But see the concept? You're either in it or you're not. And if you're not, then your body is dead. And Peter even said, I will shortly put off my tent. See, notice his tent, his body was not him. The Bible consistently distinguishes between your physical body and your spiritual person, your spirit. Uh, all the religions in the world, there's all kinds of variations on this, but you don't have to be sucked in by any of that. It's this simple and this succinct from Scripture. So what happens to us when our spirit exits our body? You, you all have many relatives, many friends who have died What happens to us? Do we go straight to heaven or hell, or do we become extinct? Like, for example, the Jehovah's Witnesses and the atheists a host of other people say that you just cease to exist and that's it. Is there consciousness beyond the grave? Well, I believe Luke 16 is the most complete depiction of afterlife in our Bibles, although there are others that are really fascinating, like uh, what is it, Isaiah 14, where the king of Babylon is described as leaving his body and entering into the hadian realm and uh, being mocked and ridiculed by the people who preceded him. That's a fascinating passage in and of itself. But let's look at this quickly. You, you're familiar with it, no doubt. Let's refresh our memory. Luke 16, there was a certain rich man who was clothed in purple and vinyl linen, fared sumptuously every day. But there was a certain beggar named Lazarus, full of sores, who was laid at his gate, desiring to be fed with the crumbs which fell from the rich man's table. Moreover, the dogs came and licked his sores. So it was that the beggar died. Look at this interesting statement. And was carried by the angels to Abraham's bosom. Bosom simply meaning uh, to his, into his presence near him. Uh, the rich man also died. We're not told how he was transported. He was buried. What was buried? The rich man? No, his body. He, on the other hand, being in torments... And look at, uh, I don't know what translation you have. Uh, Our older translations, uh, quite frankly, did us a disservice by translating the term here, hell. Uh, That's simply a mistranslation. He lifted up his eyes, saw Abraham afar off, Lazarus in his bosom. He cried and said, Father Abraham, have mercy on me. Send Lazarus that he may dip the tip of his finger in water and cool my tongue. For I'm tormented in this flame. But Abraham said, Son, remember in your lifetime you received your good things and likewise Lazarus bad things but now he's comforted you are tormented besides all this between us and you there's a great gulf fixed so that those who want to pass from here to you cannot nor can those from there pass to us he said then i beg you that you send him to my father's house i've got five brothers that he may testify to them lest they also come to this place of torment abraham said they got their bibles they've got their bibles And therefore, they need to listen. They need to read that book and listen to what it's telling them and telling everybody else on the planet. Uh, He said, no, Father Abraham, but if somebody were to go back from the dead, they would repent. Abraham said, no, they won't. You got that? You got the answer to that? There's an inspired answer to that question. You know, well, if you could perform a miracle or do... uh -uh. No, if scripture, the powerful word of God won't convince a person then something else won't. And if it does, then it's not a legitimate conversion. Scripture is the power of God. So they won't be persuaded even if a person were to rise from the dead. All right, there's no way for you and I to depict this realm that has been uh, described in such detail. But, you know, here's a stab at it. Uh, Some some realm, somewhere, obviously not a physical realm. It's in a spirit eternal, non-material, corporeal realm and it's designated as Hades, Hades. That's a Greek word. It's actually um, one of the words for being able to see with a negative on it, so unseen. And uh, the Greek world viewed it as the underworld or the uh, unseen realm of the dead. This term is used 10 times in the New Testament not to be confused with Gehenna, uh, the, the standard word for hell. We're told that Abraham and Lazarus are in one portion of this realm, and uh, the rich man is in another, and he is so separated that neither side can go to the other side. See, these are all just statements that the text makes. And uh, he's in. there are flames in his side, the rich man's side, and he is suffering pain. He's in torment. Now, if we were to just uh, look carefully then at how the Bible lays this out, we have a number of passages that do this for us. So notice this is contemporaneous with life on earth. We are all living on earth. These five brothers were on earth. So life was going on on earth. So this isn't an end of time depiction. Notice uh, when Jesus was on the cross in Luke 23, you remember one of the thieves, both of the thieves railed on him, but one of them obviously changed his mind and spoke kindly to Jesus and asked that he'd be remembered. And Jesus said, assuredly, I say to you today, This very day you will be with me. And he used a term of uh, Persian derivation in paradise. Well, uh, may I suggest to you that he's talking about this same realm where Abraham and uh, Lazarus are located, that is depicted as a, a place of comfort. And so it would seem that that's where the thief went. Then we look at John chapter 20. This is in between the resurrection and the ascension where Jesus uh, encounters some women. Uh, they fall down and grab him around the ankles, and he says, you know, don't stay here clinging to me. I've not yet ascended to my father. So if I've understood that passage correctly, uh, Jesus did not go to heaven during the period of time between his death and his resurrection. You go to the great sermon that Peter preached in the other apostles in Acts 2, and you have clarification. You remember Peter quotes Psalm 16. That passage says, you will not leave my soul in Hades, Hades, or allow your holy one, clearly talking about the human body, to see corruption. He foreseeing this spoke concerning the resurrection of the Messiah that his soul was not left in Hades, nor did his flesh see corruption because David did not ascend into the heavens. David in Psalm 16 was not talking about himself. In fact, you remember Peter said, his tomb is with us to this day. But this is a quotation referring to the Christ, the Messiah. So those two passages seem to indicate that Jesus entered into this Hadean realm. Classic Christianity going back uh, near the first century has uh, the the, uh, so-called confessions of faith, that have dominated Christendom have indicated that Jesus went to hell. But I can find no evidence of that in Scripture, and I'm certainly open to further discussion. By the way, if you go back and look at the Psalm 16 passage, the term used, of course, the Septuagint would use Hades. But the Hebrew uses Sheol, and I have found this to be a roughly equivalent term that parallels Hades many times translated in our Old Testament's grave, which I, I believe the vast majority of the time obscures the meaning of the passage. And um, it is, according to uh, Hebrew scholar Baxter, the abode of the soul after death. It's, it's roughly parallel to Hades and not to be confused, of course, with hell or the grave. Then you remember on uh, that occasion where the apostles came to Jesus and uh, uh, he said, uh, who do men say that I am? And They gave the options that people were saying. And he said, well, who do you say? And uh, Peter spoke and said, you are the Mashiach, the Christ, uh, the Messiah. And you remember uh, Jesus said, flesh and blood, it's not revealed to you, but my Father who is in heaven. I say unto you that you are uh, this small stone. But upon this ledge rock truth that you have just articulated, I'm going to build my church and the gates of... And our preachers, at least in my lifetime, have typically preached this passage uh, to say, see, hell and Satan will not be able to prevail against the church. And I certainly believe that's true. But that, that is not what I think he was saying. He didn't use the word Gehenna. He used the word Hades. In what way would Hades not prevail against the establishment of the church? Well, because Jesus entered into the Hadean realm, as we saw, And if he had stayed there, he would not have been able to uh, be resurrected, be ascended, go back to heaven, and then shed forth what Acts 2 says he shed forth in the establishment of the church of Christ. So the gates of Hades, that is, the means by which you are able to get in or out of that realm, would not deter him from accomplishing his assigned mission. Notice in Acts 2, in that great sermon that Peter preached, that same point was made. It was not possible for death to keep its grasp on Jesus. Uh, He broke the bonds of death. Well, he's referring metaphorically, is he not, to the place where you go at death and saying that did not prevent uh, his death and entrance into that realm did not prevent him from coming forth and establishing the church. That's why then he could say in Revelation 1, I have the keys to death and Hades. Uh, Those two words occur occur together a number of times. What, three times in the book of Revelation? I found it in the Old Testament as well. Why would you put those two together? Death and Hades, death and Hades. Are they the same thing? No. It's because they're related in the sense that when you die, your physical body, of course, goes into the grave, but your spirit goes to another location, this Hadian realm of which we are speaking. So it makes sense to speak of death and Hades uh, as uh, terms that uh, are connected to each other. Your spirit leaves the body, but is placed in a receptacle while the body is placed in the tomb. Uh, notice uh, Hebrews 10. This is a quotation of Psalm 40, and the Hebrews writer uses the septuagint wording of this. That in and of itself is a fascinating study that you would uh, do well. You would benefit from spending the time on it. But notice this passage. This is Jesus speaking to God, saying that God had prepared him a body to inhabit. See, Jesus existed in eternity, but the Holy Spirit, we are informed, impregnated Mary And in the process, created a body. I believe that's when the human body commences at conception. And Jesus entered that body that was created by the genetic material from Mary and from the Holy Spirit's intervention. That's how all of our bodies were created. The moment our parents conceived us from that moment forth, it's just a matter of growth. Your body grows until it reaches a point where it kind of Starts back down the hill there, and the body eventually becomes superfluous. But here's a fascinating clarification that we are not our bodies. Our bodies have been prepared for us to inhabit. But we must not dis, uh, fail to uh, make the distinction. So, God is spirit. Notice that, John 4 24. God is spirit. That's not a spirit, that's God is spirit. He is a spiritual being. He's not a physical, material being. Jesus said, a spirit does not have flesh and bones as you see I have. So Jesus, who is spirit in his eternal state, left heaven, took on human flesh, and then when he died, he went into the Hadean realm, came back, took on the human flesh, and then ultimately is uh, seated at the right hand of God. So we add these passages to our attempt to sort out all of this biblical material. And uh, that means then that when Jesus was resurrected, he exited the Hadean realm. The gates of Hades did not prevent him from coming out and ultimately establishing the church of Christ. Then we come to 2 Peter 2.4 and find a term that's used nowhere else in the Bible in the New Testament. And it tells us where, the, uh, where certain evil angels are situated. Uh, the Greek term is tartarosos, so tartarus. There is a parallel to uh, 2 Peter. Jude and 2 Peter do a lot of paralleling of each other. It's in Jude 6, and while that term is not used, the description is the same. They're being reserved under darkness uh, for the judgment of the great day. These two passages are referring to the same circumstance. So again, trying to piece all this data together, I've assumed that uh, these, these particular angels are situated in the same realm of torment Uh, that precedes the end of time. Then we come to uh, Revelation 20. Granted, this is a very apocalyptic passage. The whole book is. But notice that um, the passage tells us that the day will come where the sea will give up its dead. Think of all the people who have been buried at sea. Uh, Their bodies obviously cease to exist, even as the human body buried in the ground ceases to exist after a certain period of years. But um, this seems to be the contact point for resurrection at the end of time for the return of our spirits. Uh, There's not enough for us to get all that settled. I do remember, was it Ira North and uh, Jim Bill Backeteer, a couple of those old preachers going way back up there in Nashville. They said that, um, one of them said one day, the first thing I'm going to see on resurrection morn is, you know, the other one. Because they had bought graves So that when you come up, they're staring at each other and they kind of, you know, made fun of that idea. So I assume they had this concept in mind. But notice the judgment. And then what happens to death and the Hadean realm, the institution of death and the Hadean realm? The text says they're cast into the lake of fire. Well, what is the lake of fire? I don't know any commentator that would say other than that that's hell. All right. If Hades is cast into hell, then Hades can't be hell. You can't cast cast hell into hell. So that's further clarification, assuming that we have understood the apocalyptic nature of that passage. In fact, when you examine uh, your text very carefully, there is a uniform uh, distinction made between uh, those terms. So that's kind of a a biblical understanding of these uh, passages. Now... Uh, what's going to happen in the future? Well, again, a number of passages make clear that we're, we're waiting for a judgment. You know, if you went to any of that debate that was held over at Eastern Meadows, uh, the 70 AD theory, they believe this has already happened. But uh, I've not seen anything that those brethren have said that have convinced me that they are handling Scripture correctly. There are just too many passages that state there's going to be a judgment where all nations stand before God, Matthew 25, other passages and receive the things that are done in the body. Then, remember how it says that Jesus will separate them like a shepherd separates sheep from goats? And then he's going to consign some to eternal bliss and some to to an eternal hell of pain. And these passages seem to indicate that. There's where your word Gehenna uh, comes up. So there's kind of the the biblical depiction, the Christian view of death as, as I understand it. All right, let's look at a few questions here before our time runs out. If people in Hades already know where they will spend eternity, right? The rich man knew where he was going to go once he vacated that realm. Well, then what's the point of judgment? Why not just have people just come out of there and go? Well, apart from the fact that there will still be people alive on earth, right, who will not be in either one of those receptacles, I think that um, what we need, one of the things we really need to understand is the nature of the judgment, And the more passages that uh, we look at, the more we see that the judgment is really more of an occasion for assigning um, the punishment or the reward. That's its purpose. You know, our own trials have two phases there, do we not? You establish guilt or innocence, and then you have uh, what's known as sentencing. Judgment is really more... Of the occasion where sentence is passed. There may be some people that will be surprised and shocked maybe at the outcome of their life, but that's um, not really its purpose. Its purpose is to dispense judgment. Look at these passages that seem to indicate that. Jesus in Matthew 16, the son of man will come in the glory of his father and he will reward each according to his work. So you're receiving the outcome of your life and that's the thrust. It's appointed unto men once to die, but after this, the judgment. Second Corinthians 5, we must appear before the judgment seat of Christ that we may receive the things done in the body. So you're receiving uh, a sentencing. You're receiving a judgment. You're receiving the outcome of your life on earth, your behavior. Ecclesiastes 12, God will bring every work into judgment, including every secret thing, whether it's good or evil. And so again, the purpose being to clarify all of this for people in terms of uh, the kind of outcome that they have brought for themselves remember the statement Jesus made in John 5 the hour is coming when uh, all who are in the graves will hear his voice notice graves is again has to be used metaphorically because that's where the body is but it would have to uh, be connected with the spirit First Corinthians 15 says then there will be a change occur we'll have new bodies cor- incorruptible bodies that will last on into eternity So once again, the idea of receiving what you have done, and isn't that the point in 2 Thessalonians 1, Uh, God's going to repay certain people. He's going to consign rest to some and tribulation uh, to others. And then Matthew 25, these will go into everlasting punishment, these into everlasting life. There's the purpose of judgment, to indicate here is your outcome. So judgment day seems to be more day of sentencing rather than a time to pronounce, you know, guilt. You're guilty. You're not guilty. Not really the purpose. All right. What about uh, 2 Corinthians 12? Remember that statement? I know a man in Christ who was caught up to the third heaven. Paul talking here. I guess most commentators think he was talking about himself, but he just did not elaborate. Um, well, look at this term, third heaven. This is a technical term in scripture. So if you look at Old and New Testament, you can sort that out real quick. Uh, the Hebrew mindset had three heavens. Uh, by the way, the Quran has seven there's so many indications that the Quran is not inspired. Just so many little details. There's one. It speaks of the seven heavens, and it's using it literally. Well, there's not. There's three. Uh, the first is what we would call the atmosphere. That's not what the ancients called it. But they identified it as the place where the birds um, flew, or that sort of thing. We would call that atmosphere. The second heaven would be beyond the atmosphere, and all the rest of the universe. That's outer space. The Bible makes clear this is where the sun, moon, and stars are located. So we would say the universe. The third heaven is, re- is a reference very generically to the non-material realm, the spirit realm. Not just one particular place in the spirit realm, just the spirit realm. In the same way that Hades is a generic term, but you could get more specific and talk about paradise or Tartarus. Those are both Hades. Do you see that? They're both Hades. So the third heaven could refer generically to the, in the eternal, non-material, non-physical realm. Now, you know, the Bible gets vague after that. And I believe it's because we are creatures. God designed us to fit into this material realm And we cannot conceptualize a non-material realm. We we really can't do it. Um, We can't even conceptualize what it would be like where there's no time. But time seems to have been a creation by God. God's not subject to time. But He did create time. And notice the time flag there in that first verse. In the beginning. So time commenced as one of God's creative activities. But you and I would have trouble thinking of a dimension, a realm that's not physical, that's not spatial, it's not subject to space and time. That seems to be the terminology that is intended to be conveyed by this third heaven. Also in this passage, 2 Corinthians 12 verse 4, it's referred to as paradise. That would make sense. If the third heaven is essentially the Hadean realm, paradise would be a part of that. But, as I said, it's a generic term and therefore could be used to refer to any part of the eternal realm. What about Philippians one twenty-three, where Paul said, you know, I'd really like to leave and go be with Christ. So what? You're going to leave and then go into heaven? And most of the denominational world, if you've ever been to a funeral preached by denominational people, they all preach the person into heaven, don't they? We kind of comment on that. Uh, so they don't really conceptualize this. the The Catholic religion sees a realm called purgatory, not to be equated with this biblical realm. It's one that they've concocted uh, centuries ago uh, that a person can uh, work his way out of. the The, uh, the Mormon Church has very similar situation uh, where you can be put in a very bad place, and yet, if enough is done for you in this life, like baptism for you and so forth, you could get out of that uh, realm. Well. I just don't see any of that in Scripture. And a parallel to Philippians 1 would be Ecclesiastes 12, where he says, when you die, your spirit returns to God who gave it. So that sounds like, both those passages sound like you're going back, or you're going straight to uh, be in the presence of God. But again, you've got to keep in mind that we are beings that are subject to spatial correlations. And the Bible repeatedly affirms that God is not. The best passage that I see uh, that stresses this feature of deity in the afterlife is found in uh, Psalm uh, 139. And the psalmist is asking this question. You could ask it yourself. Where could you possibly go to get away from God? If you go to heaven, God is there. But if you went into Hades, God is there. Of course, the word is Sheol, the parallel to Hades. Now, you and I sit here and and you you teach your children, do you not? You know, If you're praying with a very small child at night, you know God is going to take care of you. Uh, God is with us all the time. Do you believe that? Does God know what every single one of us right now is thinking? He even knows. Like if I ask you, you know, before you leave, we're going to have a lottery. Hey, you can do anything nowadays. Nothing's, Nothing's wrong in the church. Uh, There's going to be a box out there. Everybody put your piece of paper in there that that says how many hairs are on the heads of all the people in this assembly. And whoever gets it will get a new wig or something. Because some of you are follically challenged. But do you know that God knows exactly right this instant how many hairs are on our heads and everybody else of the 7 billion people on the planet. That's an all-knowing, omnipresent being. That's hard to grasp. So God's not subject to that. So the scriptures could speak of us entering into the eternal realm and you are with God, even if you're not in heaven per se. That's where all of this fades out because even describing in Luke 16 this realm with these two receptacles makes it seem to us to be a time-space dimension. And I, I don't know what else to say about that except God is not subject to that. All right, we don't have time, I I think, to read uh, 1 Samuel chapter 28. What time is it? You would think you all would put a bigger clock on there just so you can keep some of these long-winded preachers from going so long. What is it? When did we start? 6.30? See, I'm confused just from that because of the 6.30 thing. I'm sure you all had a discussion, the elders did, about whether it's scriptural to have a 6.30 Okay, just checking. Uh, 1 Samuel 28. What a fascinating account. Do you remember? You know, Saul had lived uh, a wicked, rotten life. All of 1 Samuel dedicated to that. What a sad individual. Amazingly, he was the best man for the job at the time, right, when he was appointed king. Um, But he has lived such a wicked life that he he wants to uh, talk to Samuel. And Samuel had pretty much told him off already before he died, but he's, here he is near the end, and he, he would like to talk with Samuel. I don't know why. I guess he thought he could convince Samuel to, uh, what, to convince God to accept him or something? He had such a warped, shallow, anemic understanding of spiritual things. was not a spiritually-minded man at all. But you remember that, uh, incredibly, Samuel appears. Uh, he uses, Saul uses uh, what we would call a medium. She's called the witch of indoor. Uh, but I'm not aware that that term occurs anywhere in our Bibles. She was a medium, somebody who claims to have contact with the dead. We've got a lot of people like that in the country right now. And look how many shows have cropped up on, in cable TV, like ghost, what do they call Ghost watchers. And there's a lot of others. Shows about ghosts and things and a lot of, Hollywood type uh, programs where people are able to, uh, uh, you know, say, you know, they'll be standing there and say, hey, they're right here to, and they want me to tell you something. And they're saying, yeah, right. And well, then, you know, he said that when you all were sick, you did such and such. I thought, well, all that is fake. There's not anything to any of it. See, again, Christians are able to be decisive about certain things. Only about things God's told to, uh, chosen to inform us about. Granted. But the things he's chosen to inform us about, we can be adamant about. That's fake. There's nothing to that. The Bible, Old and New Testament, uses a variety of terms translated in our English uh, versions with a lot of different words, enchanters, um, um, mediums. Uh, There's the the term witchcraft occurs uh, in in some of the older versions. Um, Enchanters. Uh, There's just a whole string of these terms. And the Bible consistently from Old to New Testament indicates that's all counterfeit. It's bogus. It's fake. The individuals who claim to be able to do those things can't do it. How many of you remember uh, Wizard of Oz where uh, before they transition into Oz, uh, Dorothy runs away from home and runs into this fellow that has a crystal ball and he brings her inside of his uh, little trailer. I guess people didn't think much about that back then, but now it'd be like... (gasps) And uh, you remember he tells her to close her eyes and he reaches in her purse and pulls out a picture of Aunt Em who's standing in front of the farmhouse with a white picket fence, puts it back, okay, you can open your eyes. Okay, I'm looking in here and I'm seeing a a lady that, uh, you know, she's wearing an apron and Dorothy goes, that's Aunt Em. Uh, Yes, uh, Emily is her name. So you can just kind of milk it and fake things. And she's uh, in front of a white picket fence. Yeah, that's our house. That's exactly what's going on today. Exactly. One of those terms is used in Revelation 20, one eight to say that all who dabble in such matters will spend their eternity in the lake that burns with fire and brimstone. Here's how God feels about it. Why? That makes it seem like it's real. No, it's like any false religion. Nothing to it. And for a person to even resort to that indicates they don't have enough trust in God or they don't feel that God has given them enough to get through this life. We need something in addition? What? Certainly not anything a palm reader or fortune teller can tell you. Because they're making it up. And that's clearly the case with this woman. She's a fake. Why do I say that? Well, Samuel did appear. But it wasn't because of anything she did. God stepped in and allowed this to happen for this final sermon that was preached to Saul. Here are the reasons why I believe that she was a fake. She was more surprised than anybody. Then he appeared. It shocked her. Number two, she used the uh, Hebrew word Elohim, which is the word God or gods. It does double duty that way in that language. So she thought it was God or gods. And number three, she didn't know who it was. She had to describe what she saw and Saul in turn told her that's who it is, recognized him. So Those are textual indicators to me that suggest that uh, this is a very unusual situation. There's no human that can recall somebody from the dead, from the Hadean realm. Uh, That is strictly a matter of God's doing. You know, we have another incident that's fascinating in Matthew 17 on the Mount of Transfiguration where Moses and Elijah reappeared at the behest of Jesus himself. Wouldn't you like to have uh, been there? as those apostles were, and uh, witnessed that. By the way, do you remember what they talked about? If Moses and Elijah came back after being dead centuries, they came out of the Hadean realm and stood on earth with Jesus, what would you expect them to talk about? They talked about Jesus about to die for us. There's the topic of conversation. There's the premier subject of the Bible, the central core doctrine that runs from Genesis three, all the way through to the very end of the book Revelation twenty-two. What Jesus has done for us—that's incredible. All right, we conclude then uh, with this verse. Are we nearly? Is am I just about at the right time, Terry? Look at this passage: No one has ascended to heaven, but he who came down from heaven—that is, the Son of Man who is in heaven. He's he's actually still on earth when he says this, but there's the point. Jesus left the heavenly realm, came here, and no one has preceded us there. Uh, People are in a waiting area, so to speak, and at the end of time, at judgment, all of this will be decided, and then our eternal abodes will be consigned uh, at that point. Uh, Here is a powerful passage that we ought to be very, very sober about Don't fear those who can kill our bodies. We kind of do, don't we? Do you lock your doors when you go to bed? But he says, this is Jesus speaking. This is not the Jesus that most people in Christendom and many of our own brethren uh, believe that they are following. He said, let me tell you who you better fear. You better fear the one who, after he's destroyed your body, can destroy your spirit in hell. The word destroy obviously being used to refer to eternal destruction, eternal suffering and pain and agony. There's nobody on earth that can cause that for you. That's self-inflicted by the decisions that we make. All right, thank you for your kind attention.